Hey everyone, welcome back to what I promise will be the last time I talk about abortion for a while. Today I'm going to talk about Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case that was argued in front of the Supreme Court in December, and we expect to hear the court's ruling this June. Depending on what the court says, Roe v. Wade, as a judicial precedent, might be over as we know it. To get the full context for Roe v. Wade, the years leading up to it, and the years since, I encourage you to go back and read what I've written at presidentialpoliticsforamerica.com. And if you haven't done so, you should listen to last week's episode, because we're about to go full steam ahead. The last Supreme Court case I mentioned last week was Planned Parenthood v. Casey from 1992, which upheld the essential holding of Roe, but did include an important modification. Whereas the court in Roe set up a trimester demarcation that said states must allow abortions in the first trimester, that they can only set second trimester limits if they're tailored to the health of the mother, and that they have a valid interest in restricting third trimester abortions starting at about 28 weeks. The court in Casey said that the, de- that the demarcation line would be fetal viability for about 24 weeks, and that before then, a state could regulate abortions only if it didn't place a, quote, undue burden on the mother. One justice from Planned Parenthood v. Casey is still on the bench, Clarence Thomas, now in his 31st year on the court. Thomas signed on to the dissent in Casey that stated, we believe that Roe was wrongly decided and that it can and should be overturned. It's clear that Justice Thomas hopes the Supreme Court of the United States, or SCOTUS, will overturn Roe, and a CNN poll from earlier this year said that about 30% of Americans join him in that hope. To overturn Roe's precedent, pro-life advocates have hoped that, one day, the court might be conservative enough to overrule it. That day might be just three months away. Thanks to a rightward shift during Donald Trump's presidency, the court now has six conservatives and just three liberals. Last year, an abortion case out of Mississippi, one that would substantially roll back Roe and or Casey, came to them. If the court granted cert or agreed to hear the case, that alone would mark a shift in the court's philosophy regarding those important precedents. Remember, as I talked about last week, usually the court doesn't even hear abortion cases. If this court agreed to hear this case, it could be a harbinger of a dramatic undoing of Roe when the court issues its rule. The question was, would the justices agree to hear that case? Last May, they did. And in December, they heard the oral arguments. And this June, we'll hear their ruling. The case is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, and it might transform United States abortion law. For that reason, today, we'll take a close look at it. As always, my hope is that you come out the other side of this as a more informed citizen. I'm Ian Cheney, and this is Presidential Politics for America. Okay, today's episode will have three phases. First, we'll look at the facts of the case and lower court decisions. Next, I'll take a dive into the oral arguments from each side including justices' reactions to those arguments. And finally, you'll hear my considerations and predictions for the ruling we should hear this June. Will Roe v. Wade be rolled back? I'll give it my best guess. Part 1. 
Facts of the Case, and Lower Court Decisions. In March of 2018, the Mississippi Legislature, working with Governor Phil Bryant, passed a state law, the Gestational Age Act. The act banned abortions after 15 weeks, except in cases where the mother's life is at risk, where there's a fetal abnormality. One day later, the state, represented by State Health Officer Thomas E. Dobbs, was sued by the Jackson Women's Health Organization, the last abortion provider in the state. This lawsuit was expected. In fact, another 20 or so Republican-controlled states across the country were crafting similar laws, all in the hopes that lawsuits would eventually get appealed up to the now conservative-leaning Supreme Court, a court which Republicans hope would then overturn Roe v. Wade. Since it was a matter of whether the state law contradicted federal law, as set by judicial precedent, the lawsuit went to a federal district court, the lowest level of our federal court system. Original jurisdiction went to the United States District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi, where Judge Carlton W. Reeves placed an injunction on the state so it couldn't enforce the act, and then he struck down the law, citing the Roe precedent. The state appealed up to the next tier of the federal court system, the Federal Court of Appeals. In 2019, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the District Court's ruling in a unanimous decision. The Gestational Age Act remained unconstitutional. Undeterred, Mississippi then appealed up to the Supreme Court in 2020. In May of 2021, with nervous pro-choice and pro-life advocates watching closely, wondering if the Supreme Court would break from its recent pattern and actually grant a writ of certiorari, It did. A key threshold was crossed. Roe was endangered. This past December, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments from both sides. I studied the transcripts of those oral arguments, so you won't have to. Part two, the oral arguments and justices' receptivity to those arguments. Advocates for both sides made cases that seemed unwilling to compromise. Let's start with Mississippi. Mississippi built a case around Roe v. Wade as poorly decided and therefore ripe for overturning. The state's Solicitor General, Scott Stewart, positioned the state's argument around the bad precedents of Roe and Casey, saying that they, quote, haunt our country have poisoned the law and have no basis in the Constitution. Without that constitutional basis, Stewart echoed the argument laid out in last week's episode. Abortion should be left to the people as reflected through their states. Calling it a hard issue, Stewart said abortion, quote, demands the best from all of us, not a judgment by just a few of us. Three of the nine justices seemed to clearly agree with that reasoning. Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Brett Kavanaugh. Justice Thomas, remember, has long been hostile to Roe, and we can assume his mind is already made up, dating back to at least Planned Parenthood v. Casey, when he signed on to the dissent that described Roe as wrongly decided and that it should be overruled. Justice Alito, like Thomas and the late Justice Antonin Scalia, leans into originalist judicial philosophy an approach that has made Thomas and Alito our two most conservative justices. In the Dobbs oral argument, Alito put forward that the Constitution's framers and framers of the 14th Amendment 
with its due process clause a cornerstone of the Roe decision, did not have abortion in mind when drafting the respective documents. He raised that neither the country nor the states built a right to abortion into the original constitutions, nor did the drafters of the 14th Amendment recognize abortion as a right as late as 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified. That being so, Alito implies that abortion couldn't possibly be a constitutional right, as Roe says it is. Justice Kavanaugh agreed, noting abortion was not mentioned in the Constitution. Kavanaugh opined the court should remain, quote, scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life. That being so, Kavanaugh and Alito would almost certainly prefer the Tenth Amendment take precedence, kicking the issue to the states. Kavanaugh also raised that in cases of abortion, quote, there are two interests at stake, with the fetal life at stake as well. There, Kavanaugh channels the dilemma I wrote about a couple weeks ago, whether there's a narrative around the fetus in addition to the woman, and if so, when that narrative begins. In fact, Justice Alito twice inquired about when a fetus develops, quote, personhood. Knowing the court had a conservative bend that would lean into the above arguments, the advocates for Jackson Women's Health Organization built their case around another judicial principle that might win over a justice who favors judicial restraint, the concept of stare decisis, or the preference for the court to defer to earlier decisions for the sake of legal consistency and predictability. Arguing that the Roe and Casey lines must hold, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preetlogger practically begged the court to honor precedent. Anticipating this argument, Justice Kavanaugh listed a series of overturned precedents which were good interpretations of law and good for the country. He included Brown v. Board, which abolished de jure segregation in schools, Gideon v. Wainwright, which guaranteed one's right to counsel in state courts, Obergefell v. Hodges, which guaranteed same-sex marriage across the country, and others. He described these decisions as some of the most consequential and important in the court's history, and that if SCOTUS had adhered to stare decisis in those cases, the United States, quote, would be a much different place. In other words, just because something was set as precedent doesn't necessarily mean it was the right decision. In Brown v. Board, for example, the separate but equal precedent set by Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896 was in desperate need of an update. Kavanaugh believes the court in 1954, with Brown v. Board, was right to overturn Plessy, just as this court might be right to overturn Roe. Nonetheless, Prelaga's argument had three agreeable allies on the bench. Scotus's liberal justices, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. All three leaned heavily into the importance of stare decisis. Justice Breyer has long championed protecting the legitimacy of the court by keeping it apolitical, and that included resisting the idea of expanding the court at a time when his fellow liberals would have stood to gain from the expansion. Although he acknowledges the clearly divergent ideologies on the court, Breyer has noted the camaraderie on the court. Scalia and Ginsburg were great friends, after all. And Justice's success in keeping away from the limelight, a distance afforded by their lifetime tenure. Stare decisis, Breyer argued, is a way to reinforce the apolitical nature of the court. 
If SCOTUS starts reversing precedents due to ideological swings, the American people may perceive SCOTUS's rulings as a result of the ideological composition of the court rather than what laws say and mean, or what's right and what's wrong. In time, that would, in Breyer's words, quote, subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any serious question. An illegitimate court, Breyer fears, would have disastrous consequences. Since the court itself has no mechanism of enforcement, it has no army or police force, it relies totally on its legitimacy to have any impact on law. A country or government that sees SCOTUS as a political branch may start ignoring it. These days, it's not hard to see a political actor ignoring a ruling, since the court can't do anything about it. Justice Sotomayor seemed the most animated of the liberal trio, asking dramatically, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception, that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? She even noted that Mississippi wrote the Gestational Age Act after the court's composition made it favorable to upholding such a state law, a clearly well-timed political move. Sotomayor also reminded the court that alongside the 10th Amendment is the 9th. We have unenumerated rights, and courts have a long history of being arbiters of those. Since the Supreme Court has determined abortion a constitutional right, it is therefore a constitutional right, and it therefore takes priority over a state law. The most junior liberal justice, Justice Kagan, had a line of questioning that seemed to focus on the principle of reliance. She noted that women over the last 50 years have come to rely on easy access to abortion, which also hits on the stare decisis principle of the importance of consistent laws. The advocates for Jackson Women's Health Organization leaned hard into this one. Solicitor General Prelogger felt that, quote, on a very individual level, there has been a profound reliance, end quote. In other words, women do rely on the right to control their reproduction. In total, so far we know it's likely Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh will vote to undo Roe, while Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan will vote to preserve it. With the count at three to three, we're now left to divine the intentions of the three remaining justices, Chief Justice Roberts and Associate Justices Gorsuch and Barrett. All are varying degrees of conservative, with Roberts the most moderate. Therefore, watching the Chief Justice is the key to seeing if the liberals even have a chance. Roberts seemed most interested in discussing the 15-week line versus the post-Casey 24-week viability line. Roberts didn't seem to think that viability was an issue in Roe, as, quote, it wasn't briefed or argued, end quote. Although Justice Blackman mentioned it in his majority decision in Roe, Roberts said that it was merely dicta, an incidental remark, rather than binding precedent. Importantly, and I believe we're starting to get at the heart of Roberts's thinking and the most likely landing place for the Supreme Court here, Roberts also noted that 15 weeks should be sufficient to learn of one's pregnancy 
and get it terminated. Robert seemed to think 15 weeks gives a, quote, fair choice to the mother. So there's no, quote, undue burden, end quote, against which Casey had warned. He said, viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. But if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time, end quote. Justice Roberts therefore suggests other lines could exist when determining when to allow a pregnancy. He is, of course, right that the line is arbitrary. As discussed last week, for much of American history, that threshold was quickening around four or five months. Roe used trimesters. Some states have put forward bills that want a deductible heartbeat to be the threshold. Others say it should be when the fetus has pain receptors. Viability, in other words, is just one of many subjective lines to draw when determining when a state can restrict abortion. Roberts pursuing that line of questioning suggests he may seek to find a middle ground, upholding Roe while also allowing the 15-week ban. Still, for Roberts' more moderate position to win the day, he would need to at least win a plurality of the bench. That makes Gorsuch and Barrett's thoughts crucial. However, they did less clear signaling than did the other seven justices. That said, based on past positions and some comments during oral arguments, they're probably closer to the Thomas Alito-Kavanaugh trio than to the liberal trio. The question is whether they're closer to Thomas Alito-Kavanaugh or closer to Roberts' middle ground. Justice Barrett seemed interested in the argument from Mississippi's advocate, Solicitor General Stewart, that noted circumstances since 1973's Roe rulings have changed. Barrett, on multiple occasions, wanted to address the rise of safe haven laws, which allow parents to give up newborns younger than 30 days at various locations. States began enacting such laws in 1999, well after Roe. Further, women are also more entrenched as successful participants in the workplace, and their careers can better survive a pregnancy. Further still, contraception has become more diverse and accessible. Barrett might therefore make the point that circumstances have changed since Roe, when such laws and customs weren't yet in place, which would then justify overturning the precedent. On the other hand, Barrett expressed concern over a rollback of the right to privacy, possibly leading to undermining that right in other areas, like same-sex marriage and contraception. In other words, Dobbs v. Jackson could become a precedent for more than just abortion cases. Stewart, however, rejected that idea, as those other liberties are fairly settled and not seriously challenged, unlike abortion. He notes that those other precedents have, quote, engendered strong reliance interests that have not produced negative consequences, unlike the purposeful termination of human life, end quote. Whether that answer is enough to satisfy Barrett remains to be seen. And finally, Justice Gorsuch. He seemed most interested in how Casey deviated from Roe, noting, quote, Casey rejected Roe's trimester framework and replaced it with an undue burden standard, which has proved difficult to administer, end quote a nod to the evolving science on viability and the competing judgments from those who evaluate viability. He wondered if there was, quote, any other intelligible principle that the court could choose, end quote. This line of reasoning makes him seem open to Roberts's middle ground position 
as Barrett might be. Part 3. Considerations and Predictions Now we get to the big question. What will the court say? The question the Supreme Court justices will consider is, are all pre-viability prohibitions on abortions, including Mississippi's, unconstitutional? In other words, should states like Mississippi be barred from enacting pre-viability laws limiting abortion? To those questions, there are three general possible SCOTUS answers. The Supreme Court might say, yes, all pre-viability prohibitions on abortion remain unconstitutional. The court would join the lower courts in striking down the Mississippi law and reaffirm the court's position on abortion. There, Roe, as modified by Casey, survives. Scenario two is that SCOTUS might say no, that all pre-viability prohibitions on abortion are not unconstitutional, and that Roe was wrongly decided. In that case, Roe would be fully overturned. In this scenario, the court could withdraw the federal government from the issue altogether, allowing states to enact total abortion bans. If Roe is overturned, 12 states have trigger laws that automatically ban abortions, with varying exceptions like fetal abnormality, rape, incest, and health of the mother. It's expected at least another dozen or so Republican-controlled states, in addition to the 12 that have trigger laws, could realistically join them, bringing bans to about half the states in the country. And then there's a third scenario. The court might narrowly tailor an opinion that says something like, no, all pre-viability prohibitions on abortion are not unconstitutional, including Mississippi's, but some still are. In this scenario, it might allow the Mississippi 15-week ban and call that the new threshold for the time being. In this scenario, Roe v. Wade survives, but on life support. It would be rolled back. It's this last possibility to which I think Roberts is trying to guide the court. And I think several justices seem interested in setting a new line. The implications to this scenario do not end there, however. It's feasible that earning a ruling that allows abortion bans at 15 weeks is not the last attempt from pro-life advocates to roll back abortion access. Once the line is moved to 15 weeks, we can expect another state could follow with a more restrictive number, say 13 weeks, which marks the end of the first trimester. The court might see moving the line another two weeks as not a big deal. Then, with the new line at 13 weeks and the threshold line clearly pliable, new heartbeat bills, which move the line to when the embryonic heartbeat is detected, usually around six to eight weeks, which can be before a woman even knows she's pregnant, could be the next case to arrive at a listening SCOTUS. In sum, scenario three could lead to a slow erosion of Roe, a path that could lead to later overturning Roe while avoiding the whiplash ruling of doing it now, which offers cover to this current court. As for my predictions for this June's decision, it's worth knowing that it can be hard to predict justices. 
They sometimes poke at ideas during oral arguments to see if there's anything there, but the advocates for one of the sides offers sufficient responses. That said, it sounded to me like the conservatives had their minds made up, at least about partially rolling back Roe. In fact, Justice Sotomayor's passionate language reads to me like someone who knew her side had lost, and she was testing a dissent. Before December's oral arguments, my ranking of likelihood was, well, most likely I thought it'd be a rollback of Roe to 15 weeks, with the second most likely being that Roe would be fully upheld, and the least likely being that Roe would be fully overturned. But now, after seeing those oral arguments, I still think a rollback of Roe to 15 weeks is the most likely, but I would say it's more likely now that Roe is overturned than it is fully upheld. I know, it's dramatic stuff with implications for many, many people across America. We'll have to wait until June for the Supreme Court's ruling. But between now and then, consider yourself informed. I'm Ian Cheney, and this has been Presidential Politics for America. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, listeners. I've been so grateful for your support during these early days of the new podcast. I assure you, however much you cringe at audio issues or the sound of this voice, I cringe even more than that. There's a learning curve here and I'm trying to get the hang of it, so I thank you for your patience. Your patience may have also been tested by my choice of topic in the first two full-length episodes. You'd think that I'd warm up this new platform with a fuzzy, nice-feeling topic. Perhaps a topic that has broad consensus, something on which we could all agree. But did I choose a topic like that? I did not. I chose abortion. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. So today, I thought I'd finally broach a topic upon which my website was initially founded. Presidential politics. Believe it or not, that used to be the only thing that Presidential Politics for America wrote about. In 2007 and 2008, and then again in 2011 and 2012, and then again in 2015 and 2016, my website hosted these brief spurts of election analysis, and election analysis only. But then, after each of those elections, PPFA faded back into oblivion before coming back for a new election. Starting after the 2016 election, however, I challenged myself to branch into other topics. In 2017, I started writing about history, most notably when I counted down the 30 most influential figures in Western history, an endeavor that somehow ended up as a published book, currently taking up space on literally dozens of bookshelves around the world. In 2018, I covered my first midterm elections, culminating in surprisingly accurate predictions. In 2020, of course, I circled back to presidential politics, and now I'm back to history. But not today. Today, for the first time on this podcast feed, we turn back the clock. I'm Ian Cheney, and this really is 
presidential politics for America.